0: Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card,
1: right this way,
0: it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
2: You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? New?
3: It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.
4: The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome back. It's the latest episode of The Book of Joe with me, Tom Verducci, and former Lafayette quarterback, Joe Madden. Joe, I bring that up because we're going to do a football edition of The Book of Joe. Well, at least as it relates to baseball. Uh, and I know you, uh,
1: former quarterback at Lafayette, will enjoy this. I would, I will, I would. I, um, you know, I started out actually in midget football when I was 10 playing quarterback. It's incredible and crazy how that just carries over into the rest of everything that you do, calling audibles when you're 10. It was, it was kind of, I can't say it was my first love, but it was the sport that I probably played better. I just um, was called to the greener pastures of, of a baseball field. I loved everything about it. Um, football hurt more than baseball did, kind of. So uh, there's part of those things that I, I do still love about football. I watched the games this past weekend. I was so disappointed in the way the Eagles went about their business. And I'm not even an Eagles fan. It was just, wow, how did that happen? So, yes, very cool. I'm into it. Well, I'm glad you brought that
4: up, watching the games on television, because Americans love to do just that, Joe. Here's a question for you. Of the top 100 rated television shows in the year 2023, How many of those do you think were NFL games?
1: Out of uh, top how many? Top one hundred rated television shows. Football games. Gosh, um, a lot actually. Um, You You got to be a little more specific than
4: a lot. I'm just saying
1: we don't really watch TV (laughs) that much anymore. And you know, baseball games. I'll say, I'll say fifty.
4: Correct answer is ninety three.
1: There you go. Ninety
4: (laughs) three of the top one hundred programs on television last year were nfl games and by the way another three of them were college football games Wow! now if you went back just two years ago it was 75 of the top 100 last year well two years ago now 2022 it was 82. 93 of the top 100 programs were nfl games now listen joe we love baseball there's no question about it and There is some connection to baseball that I think emotionally no other sport can offer. And I think that's true. And the volume of games and how much time we devote to it over the course of seven months is just incredible. But, you know, baseball was known as the national pastime. But now I think that football in a very different way is not just something that we love to watch. It's become a cultural force. It's, it's what binds people. It's what people talk about at the office, you know, around the water cooler uh, on Monday mornings, if water coolers still exist. You know, even if you're not a diehard football fan, you're engaged in the fabric of conversation and, hey, did you see the game or what's the local team doing? And especially now that betting is something that is not taboo, but it just, let's face it, encouraged everywhere we turn with advertising. That has helped the popularity of the NFL and football in general. So the the pull of football now is what baseball used to be as far as a cultural force. But again, I don't think the emotional connection
1: is quite the same as it still is with baseball. Yeah, the ubiquitous nature of baseball, though, too, right? The fact that you could watch so many games during the course of an entire year versus uh, once every weekend, whether it's a college game, high school game on a Friday normally the, the college on Saturday and then, and then the NFL on Sunday. The fact that it's a once-a-week kind of a, an event uh, permits people, I think, to dr- be more readily uh, wanting to drive a longer distance comfortably, whereas a, a baseball game, even like here, I'm, I'm in Tampa right now, to go across the uh, Howard Franklin Bridge to get down to St. Petersburg is such a big deal, and it's pretty much only, um, I, I don't know, 20-some miles maybe, but nobody wants to do that if you want to, if you want to buy a season ticket to go every night. I'm, I'm just making the case that I, I think the once-a-week kind of a gig absolutely helps the uh, allure, the attractiveness, uh, the fact that you could watch every baseball game uh, as a package, your team, other teams. Because I follow different teams this past year. It's so easy to do. And on a nightly basis, I mean, how about the cumulative numbers of, of games watched during the course of a year? And what how, how does that add up to as opposed to that, that one big hit uh, on a Sunday afternoon or um, a, a big playoff game or a Super Bowl. So I, I think there's – there's, um, I get it uh, regarding the attraction, the allure, uh, the fact that it's in the top 100 so many times. But baseball uh, collectively as a group, I think, is watched probably – has to be watched more than football is if you just take every night, uh, whether it's the Yankees, the Dodgers, whomever, the really big draws. And if, you, if you combine that, it's got to be pretty staggering also. But – I'm not disagreeing with you, and I'm really disappointing to me that we're not spoken about as a national pastime anymore. We've talked about this, you and I have, and it's something that I, I used to try to do in my press conferences with the Cubs, especially. Always reference baseball as the national pastime. To really just try to promote that thought and see if people could start repeating it more often, because I, it does bother me that we we've slipped so far when it comes to that phrase and and how people view our game versus the game of football. Um, so, yeah, I could keep going on and on, but I think there's reasons. Uh, football is is popular and interesting, but I'm here to tell you, man, it's easier for me uh, to sit down and watch a full baseball game than it is to watch a full football game.
4: Yeah, I'm with you on that. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being the national pastime because I think the NFL, when you touched on this, Joe, is more of a spectacle. Mm-hmm. We are awed by it, the fact that it comes so rarely, generally once a week for your favorite team. The players on the field are just spectacular in what they can do at their size and their speed, where baseball, to me, is so much more approachable and relatable and there's a comfort to the fact that there are 2,430 games in a major league season; that it's always there for you. Right. And you know, growing up, it's the entry level sport for a lot of folks. I don't think people look at the NFL as something that's relatable. I think it's something that they're awed by. So it's our national spectacle. But there's nothing wrong with being a pastime. Okay. Pastime is something that you just love to spend time with, and it's very comfortable. And yes, it's exciting as well. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it's not like having a hammock in your backyard. Well, I guess sometimes it is. But the the fact that it's there for you throughout the summer, especially outdoors, and let's face it, most people consume the NFL uh, by never being in a ballpark or a stadium, as they call them, in their lives. Baseball is something that you – the tactile nature of it, of being out there and seeing and feeling that the energy in the ballpark is something a lot of people can relate to. There's more opportunities to do that. So that's why I say I think the emotional connection in terms of how you feel about the sport, how you relate to the sport and its players, to me, it's a little stronger. And I'm saying that completely recognizing, obviously, football
1: is much more popular. It is. Um, I'm just as you're as you're making all those points, I'm just thinking about me as a kid. And I know that's not uh, we're not talking 1960s and 70s, but my God. And you were probably the same way. First thing in the morning when you wake up in the summertime, especially because we're kid from cold weather, man, you want to get outside and play baseball. Never got tired of it, whether it was Little League, uh, Tieners Ball, eventually uh, Babe Ruth Ball, just summer ball in general. And you're playing for your city normally. Um, you were you're, you're, you're vying to make an all-star team at that point. There was no such thing as a uh, travel team. Of course, not. my father never could have afforded a travel team, nor did he have the time to drive me around like like it's uh, like it happens today I just I just am amazed by all that. I guess what I'm just trying to say there was a time when it was more of the fabric I mean the kids, parents uh, fathers, kids some and moms uh, we would be we would just be so engrossed with the summer, the game, the flow of the game wanting to play the game. Our heroes were baseball players. Uh, football players wear helmets you couldn't see their faces. Baseball players are just out there with a cap on and you could see them so easily. Now, of course, again, uh, television-wise, we saw them, what, once a week? Maybe that was part of the allure also. We didn't see them as often. And if you ever got to a ballpark, they truly, and for those that have, uh, remember that, they were larger than life, these dudes. They were. I mean, to stand outside of uh, Connie Mack Stadium and have, um, let's say, Julian Javier walk by me or Kurt Flood or Lou Brock, Carl Warwick, all these dudes back in the day, I would just stand there. And I mean, absolutely in awe of these people. I don't know that we have that. Uh, kids have that same kind of uh, uh, awestruck uh, component about the game that we grew up with that really was a big part of why I wanted to be a baseball player. I wanted to be a professional baseball player. I like football, but I didn't want to be a football guy. So I don't, I don't know if just in fact, the way this has evolved to the point where uh, kids just don't readily just play the game on their own. Everything's so organized, so structured. Uh, the the idea that uh, the way uh, youth baseball is structured. Now it's all about becoming best in show. It's not about playing for the uh, Hazleton versus West Hazleton and beating them because you just want to beat them because they're from the other city and your group of dudes, a group of guys that you grew up with, you band together and you want to play and win. I don't know that that's, that is as uh, prominent as it had been. And I don't know to what extent that's part of why the game isn't as popular uh, there, was, there was a lot of tie-ins to that, man, that I, I really thought uh, brought me along and made all of that very interesting to me and still is. Um, I have a, a grandson that's playing a lot of baseball now out in Arizona, and it's not about winning for the, for the school or the team as much as it is just trying to get out there and play and hopefully becoming the best player on the field. And that's, that's where the disconnect lies with me.
4: Yeah. And that's just the way the world is. And I agree with you. There's something special about playing for your hometown team with buddies in your same grade and you you feel a a special bond and it is about the team more than about you. But our society now is so much more about, look at me, you know, individuals being the best version of you and less about team. I don't think baseball's alone in that regard. Um, I mean, we have kids now, really good baseball players don't play for their high school teams because they think the competition is better playing travel ball during the high school baseball season. The, the idea to me that you're going to high school and not playing for your high school varsity team, yeah. is just I, I can't relate to it, but that's the way the world is these days. I get it. Um, so I think that's what's made coaching and managing more difficult because people are raised more of, a, of an individual environment than a team environment, including in team sports. That being said, Joe, you mentioned you watched – the Bucs, you watched the Eagles. Mm-hmm. Something stuck out at me in the first round of the wild card of the NFL playoffs last week, and that is the home teams went 5-1. And, and I started thinking, what's happening to home field advantage in both baseball and football? Now, in the NFL, since the 12-team format in the playoffs back in 1990, the home team wins about 67% of the time. And that's pretty much where the number is in the NFL. If you even go back to the 1940s, overall, about it, almost two thirds of the time the home team is going to win. Baseball doesn't have that kind of home field advantage. And what's interesting to me, Joe, is you look at the postseason last year in Major League Baseball. Check this out: Home teams in the postseason last year in baseball were 15 and 26. 15 and 26. That's a three sixty six winning percentage, which is the lowest in any postseason since 1970, when there were only 11 postseason games, by the way, four and seven records, so that's not even comparable. Postseason winning percentage for home teams has now gone down for three straight years. Joe, what is going on with the home field advantage?
1: Well, I mean, uh, having done it recently, I could tell you, like, Um, when it gets to the playoffs, the field, it could be loud, but for whatever reason, um, baseball people, baseball players are able to block that out. I, it's just, uh, I don't know that the game is as emotional maybe as a football game would be. I'm just thinking, um, serendipitously. I mean, the fact that there's so many signals calls that have to be made in a football game where in baseball, that's not the case. Baseball, it's more internal. Um, you're just trying to breathe and get your focus and, um, And slow things down. I don't know that that's as prevalent in the game of football as much, where uh, the crowd noise and just the fact that you're getting hit all the time uh, really plays. There's a a lot of emotion component to the game of football, physically, well as mentally, that I don't think you feel in baseball. I know you don't feel in baseball. Uh, I'm not playing the game, but I'm standing there in in a dugout in a, let's just say, in a playoff game in the old kingdom, uh, not the kingdom, excuse me, the um, Metrodome in Minnesota. You can't get any louder than that. Cannot. But the, the worst part was just trying, again, communication, talking to the guy next to me if I had to. But the fact that it was loud and it was inside and you are away, it's weird. But baseball-wise, it doesn't bother you as much um, as a participant. I don't. I know the Phillies were, were said to have this great home field advantage based on that ballpark and that fan base. What did the Diamondbacks do? They sachet right in there and, and get the, the job done. So the noise factor in a baseball game for a baseball player isn't as nuts. Like when a baseball player is playing golf, I don't need, I don't need anybody to stop talking behind me. I don't hear him anyway. A uh, plane flies over. Who cares? Um, I, I just think we're, we're uh, conditioned or patterned different. And the the, the the emotion of the crowd, you don't feel it as much. You might for a pitch or two, yes, the place might erupt. But you're able to come back. Uh, we're, we're taught to like slow things down, breathe, uh, focus on the moment, keep the emotion out of it. These are the kind of thoughts that we have and we try to train our guys to have. So maybe that has something to do with it.
4: Yeah. Let me just clean up something I said. I said the post-season winning percentage, uh, at home has gone down three straight years. That's actually The regular season, which obviously is a much larger sample size, regular season home field winning percentage has gone down three straight years. This is not just a postseason phenomenon. During the regular season, um, the winning percentage was 521. That's barely a flip of the coin for home teams in the regular season in 2023. That ties 1999 as the lowest in any full season since 1971 that's a long time where home field advantage now is means less than it ever has. Um, I, we're going to take a quick break, Joe, when we come back, I'm going to start to give you my thoughts about the NFL and MLB and why home field advantage either matters or in baseball's case, doesn't.
5: This show is sponsored by better help. with BetterHelp, visit betterhelp.com book of joe today to get 10 percent off your first month that's BetterHelp, help help.com book of joe
6: this is it we've got an amex platinum pro on our hands ladies and gentlemen we haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the centurion lounge <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary wi-fi oh my look at that he is And you will not believe where he's going next.
0: The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
6: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
4: So, Joe, I talked about the home field in the NFL, and certainly in the playoffs you see that. Um... 67% of the time, I I have a problem with the idea that the game is too much affected by the home crowd in the NFL. The fact that you know uh, home teams, home crowds delight in getting the false starts when they're so loud, the quarterback can't call a play. That is a huge advantage in a game that relies on making adjustments at the line of scrimmage. I don't know what can be done about it. Nothing, I'm sure. But that strikes me, it just doesn't strike me as fair. I don't like it. I really don't. Um, you know, you should be able to play your game against their game, uh, and not have the third element decide so much of game play. That's not the case in baseball, as you said. You can. We've been. You know, listen. The loudest place I've ever been in was the Metrodome in 1987 in the World Series, and also in 1991. That was like going to uh, ACDC concert for three hours. You came out of that literally, and your ears were ringing. Uh, And, of course, the Twins ran the table back then. It was a home field advantage. You couldn't see the ball because of the Teflon roof. Lots of other funky things going on there. I get that. Mm -hmm. But in baseball, I agree with you, Joe. I think the home crowds and the noise they generate just simply does not matter. And I'll actually flip it on you here, Joe. I spent a lot of time with the Rangers last year in the postseason. And the best thing to happen to them was actually starting on the road. Remember, they lost home field advantage and a bye in the first round when they lost one nothing on the last day of the season to Seattle. So they had to go to Tampa. And Tampa had the best home record in the American League. You're going inside, and there's some funkiness to that ballpark, as you know well, Joe. And they win there. They go to Baltimore, the best team in the league. They win there. They went 11-0 in the postseason. And I think the bonding experience of being on the road together, of being a team in an underdog situation, if you will, they turned that into a net positive and they just literally rolled with it. They, they just kept that role going throughout the postseason. So um, we talk a lot about you're a first or second seed in the league and you get the advantage of the first round bye and home field advantage. We really have to
1: start deemphasizing home field advantage in baseball. Yeah, I'm with you. And and the thing is, you're as we're extrapolating a bit in baseball. We play what 81 games on the road every year anyway and you play three-game sets anyway. It's not like you just uh, sashay into town for one game and leave. Uh, The NFL, they travel like the day before a lot during the season, I think, uh, the game that they're going to play. There's also this uh, getting used to the the elements and what's going on where you're at. Um, There's all that to to be considered too. But baseball, we play all the time on the road. We play a lot of games on the road. We're used to the travel. We have our our set routines that we do there also. It's about – I guess a lot of it is about routine, and when you establish a routine that you're comfortable with, you can almost do it anywhere. Um, again, I'm speaking as a manager right now, and as a coach, because I didn't do it as a player in the big leagues, but I did it in the minor leagues, obviously. And, and you do once you've established a routine that you're comfortable with, you got to the ballpark, you know, you walk out there, the mound's the same distance away. The, I'll tell you what happens sometimes: hitting backdrops could be a, a pain in the butt, and even like for instance in Oakland, the the depth perception because there's so much room behind. Uh, say the first baseman on a throw from third base and so what that looks like different little quirky things like you mentioned with the with the trop when i managed the trop one of the first things i said i wanted to do was make it the pit i wanted that to become the home court advantage in all of major league baseball and it kind of did for a long time and i think it still played to a, a pretty big advantage there
4: yeah And by the way the lighting in that place is terrible it's a terrible place to hit yeah and i i think the rays kind of get used to that visiting teams
1: are always complaining about that all the all that stuff you you do but um that's, there's a few of those, like we're saying, a few places like that. But for overall, maybe there's a time the Yankee Stadium could intimidate some young guys coming in. That's why I always, to, uh, I always used to preach with the Rays. Everybody used to say, uh, the Rays need to get out of the East. I said, why? I mean, uh, in order to be the best, you got to beat the best. I thought it was an advantage to us to have to play at Yankee Stadium and, and Fenway so often. I thought that was the best way to develop our young players and move them along more quickly. And it did. Um, so we could keep going around this all different ways, but I think the fact that baseball and baseball players, uh, we play so often away from our home spot, play so many games that kind of becomes moot. You kind of become numb to all that. And it's not that big of a deal.
4: Yeah. And you also made me think of something else when you talked about the old Yankee stadium. And I agree that place was just, I remember Paul O'Neill saying when he he scored a run, I I think it was in the, the 2001 world series he literally could feel the ground shaking. Mm -hmm. And the upper deck would literally sway when that place got super loud. And I'll tell you a quick story. When they opened the new Yankee Stadium, uh, they played against Cleveland. Mark DeRosa was playing for Cleveland then. And I'll never forget talking to him after the game, and he said the Yankees just lost their home field advantage. And remember, we're talking about opening day, so the new ballpark is full. I said, what are you talking about? He said, if you were a visiting player, and the Yankees started rallying on you, you felt intimidated. Those fans were right on top of you. And he said, now this is a beautiful new ballpark, but they're no longer on top of you, and they lost a home field advantage. And I think that's true, maybe not just of Yankee Stadium, Joe, but some of the newer ballparks, Mm -hmm. that there's so many creature comforts that sort of the intimidation factor is not there in some of these places. So maybe that's also coming into play in postseason
1: baseball. Well, combination of, of that plus you have to have a good team to intimidate somebody with. Uh, I know for years it was really the when I was with the Angels uh, first time around, we to, we 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 actually had the only winning record I think against the Yankees during that. Uh, you did their, their, during their, the Tory their, their, years, their, yes. Right, exactly with the only winning record. So we walked in there, no big deal. I know Chuck Finley loved to pitch in that ballpark, and we never felt intimidated. We actually felt inspired. However. Going to Fenway was different. We played poorly at Fenway Park again for the quirkiness and the fans being right on top of you it was just a different thing. That's part of it too. There's, there's certain places you walk into you feel good, you feel comfortable. I'm okay with this, and others that you just don't. You would think that Wrigley uh, should have been that for so many years with the Cubbies because I mean that that's that's like a, a microclimate in there. There's so many different. Things that happen during the course of the year, their wind blowing in primarily, people don't even realize that. You see the the short number, 365 in the gap. But i tell you what, that's the longest 365 you've ever seen when the wind's blowing in. Uh, wind blowing out, of course, becomes mitigated. But that's um, that's rare. Actually, the wind for me blew in way more often than it blew up, but it never really worked to the advantage of the Cubs. The other part was the day games. I, I've always, when I first got there, I thought, my God, this is, we got to do something about it. And we did. We, we stopped taking a lot of pregame on before day games in order to try to bring or swing this advantage back to us. So all these different ballparks have a uniqueness about them. Some are more intimidating than others. But at the end of the day, man, the old Cleveland Indians, brother, that was a tough spot to win in the late 90s, mid-late 90s. Uh, wow. They would come back all the time. They had a bunch of horses. They sold out every night. Another one was uh, Toronto when um, Cedar was there, when they won two years in a row, yeah. that place was sold out every night, and it's as loud as you can possibly get. 50,000 people every night. So when you walk in there, uh, you see uh, their, their their lineup was – and that the other thing, their lineup was the same every night. Cedar wrote the same nine names in every night in the same order. They, that was somewhat intimidating, especially when you came from the West Coast back there to play one series in that ballpark. So there's, there's all these little nuances. That I don't, you know, it's hard to evaluate or consider. But for me, I used to think about these things walking in the door, and I knew some places were going to be more difficult than others.
4: Yeah, I'm not sure there's as many of those places anymore, Joe. And, and I think maybe part of it is the fact that all these ballparks now are in great condition. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Wrigley. You know, I remember Matt Joyce telling me when they were starting the renovation of Wrigley Field, the Cubs had this beautiful uh, cage area behind the dugout. There was nothing on the visiting side. So if you were getting ready to pinch hit late in the game, you literally had no area to get yourself ready to hit, and the Cubs did, home field advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, the way If you went to Tiger Stadium in the 1980s and, and Sparky Anderson had all those sinker balls and split pitchers on the mound throwing ground balls, you could lose a small child in the grass at Tiger Stadium. It was so high. It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way the foul lines were curved, if you had a team that could bunt, you know you made sure that you you built your ballpark the way it would uh, accommodate your offense. Those things don't happen anymore. It's very generic when it comes sure. to the condition of the playing fields. These fields are absolutely perfect. um You went into Shea Stadium or Fenway Park. The infields were terrible i mean terrible you could there were bad hops everywhere. You can watch baseball for a month and not see a bad hop on these fields. So there's sort of been a homogenation of the playing fields themselves. And I get it. The, the dimensions are different. But there's such a sameness to it that I think the uniqueness that you were talking about and some of the, the true home field advantage, uh, it, they have been dulled over the course of building these great ballparks and the conditions of the fields. Um, and just to prove that, once again, I'm going to give you some postseason numbers here because in a total wildcard era since we've gone to these expanded playoffs. Home field advantage is about 54% of the time, 541 winning percentage since 1995 in the postseason. In the last four seasons, it's down to 510. The four seasons before that, it was 563. 510, I mean, that's a flip of the coin in the postseason, Joe. So Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. probably a lot of factors going on here. You can also talk, I think, about how there's less – separation between the really good teams and the good teams. I think there is a little more parity in the game today. I think we see that every year in the postseason. Literally anybody who gets in can win the World Series. It's not just like one or two teams can, as you feel in the NFL. So I think all these things are coming into play. But I think as we look at baseball and we talk so much about home field advantage, oh, you're going to get the deciding game at home, and this team is tough to beat at home. Be careful with that.
1: It doesn't mean nearly as much as it used to. You take uh, Roger Bossard with the uh, White Sox. He puts piles of dirt out in the infield while these guys are taking uh, batting practice or in, in infield ground balls, and he would he would structure the area at shortstop, third base, second, whatever, according to how that infielder wanted. The, the ground, the turf, Great. a little bit more firm, a little less firm, et cetera, as an example. Hey, I, I'm going to stop you and, and
4: reminds me, you with that story, I go one step further. I know a team, this is probably back in the 1980s, that used two sets of baseballs, sure one when they were batting and one when the other team was batting. And when the other team was batting, guess where those baseballs came from? The refrigerator. Sure. True story. And obviously now the, the, the care and, and, and condition of the baseballs, the way that Major League Baseball supervises uh, basically the chain of command of how baseballs go from the, the shop to the ballpark. Uh, that also has been homogenized. It's obviously for the better. But again, change over years, all these things add up.
1: We, we were always concerned in the Metrodome that the when they were hitting, the air conditioning would come on. You would see the little – like those little pieces of fabric – on the vents behind home plate, like blowing out towards center field. And then when we'd come up to hit, all of a sudden they would go limp. Uh, there was always this, this concern. Um, teams don't bunt as much obviously anymore, but you know, one of the first things I've always done in each ballpark, I'd get out and I would roll a ball down the third base in the first base line to see if the ball would come back fair. This goes back to the minor league days. You used to go into a corner and hit your fungos in the corner to see the carom and rebound off the wall. Off the wall as it wraps around the corner. You know, and one of the worst is actually Kansas City. People don't even realize that where the ball wraps around. All the little nuance that's built in each ballpark that you have to learn and understand. And that's 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 really an interesting and a separating part of the game for me for us. Where in football, like it's even more homogenized. I mean, that's just it's it's what fifty-two yards wide or something like that, hundred yards long, and it's always the same. And there's no crown in the fields anymore. They're all flat. So those fields are uh, wonderfully the same, but uh, baseball's all each ballpark had its new ones. You're talking about the grass. How about just the dirt in front of home plate? Secret ball pitcher, you'd see that groundskeeper out there before the game, just soaking the crap out of the ground right in front of home plate. So if, and if your guys hit a ground ball, boom, it would just die. It would absolutely die before it got into the high grass. So a lot of things were controlled at that time. It's true. It's all true. And you knew it. And nobody ever complained about it because you all had the opportunity to set up your field the way you thought it, it suited your team, interesting part of the game, really cool part of the game, and and again it's it's a part of the personality and uh, the interest that we that the game generated for so many years, things to talk about, and does not really matter? And it's, it's it creates the conversation. Love that stuff, and um, it just doesn't hardly exist anymore because there's not. There's no, nobody tailoring fields to different attributes by players, but watch out now. If the game continues to become more of a speed game, a game in motion, Bundy comes back a little bit, you're going to start seeing things like that happen again, and it would make it a little bit more interesting.
4: Here's a question for you, and put your manager's hat on here, because I, I think one of the more overrated stats that people look to is home-road splits. Uh Like I've seen managers start a guy in a playoff game because he had a good record at home. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe in that. If you look at playing records over the course of the guy's careers over time, there's not a consistency to it. Yes, I mean, if, you, if you're Jim Rice or Wade Boggs, you're going to put up better numbers at Fenway Park over the course of your – I get that. I mean, that's just going back to the dimensions of the field. There's no foul territory. You know, left field wall is so close. Hit a fly ball, you get a single. I get all that. What I'm saying is if you've got a pitcher who's got good home numbers – and I think you had this in 16 with Kyle Hendricks. Um, you know, these things happen. You can get on a roll. But the fact that someone is going to be a better pitcher at home than on the road over the course of his career or a consistent basis or something you can bank on, I'm not buying it, Joe. I'm really not. I think it's entirely overrated. Is there something there? Yeah, but I'm not banking on it.
1: I think uh, young pitchers, it can be something that you have to just pay attention to a little bit with. I remember, if I remember properly, like James Shields when he first started out was a, definitely better at the trough than he was on the road. I think sometimes for me, this is my opinion, that uh, backgrounds, Matt, I just talked about it with Oakland, what a pitcher sees. What do you see? Sometimes, honestly, the catcher looks like he's right on top of you and sometimes it looks like he's 100 feet away as opposed to 60 feet, 6 inches. So sometimes it's perception, and that will result in trying to throw the ball harder because it looks like he's farther away, or it could just be nice and easy because the guy looks like he's right in front of me. Uh, all these things, I mean, and also like in, in dome sometimes – when a, when a pitcher throws a ball well and the catcher catches it right the pop in the mitt. That could be very uh, confident building, confidence building when they hear that loud snap of the glove. All these little things matter. Um, when you're not hearing the snap of the glove or the ball, the catcher looks like he's farther away, then here comes more effort that's not necessary. So there is that. My point is then as a pitcher plays a bit, um, I think that kind of goes away. So I would, I, would always, I would always, I'm aware of that a little bit with young pitchers, um, home and road splits, I just look at, not that I, I don't think I would change that um, if somebody was building into it or if, he was one, if he's my guy, I'm not going to worry about it so much. But there's, it's a youthful thing, I think, more than anything. And as you gain experience, I think all that stuff kind of morphs together. And if there was uh, an apparent disadvantage early on, it goes away.
4: Well said. Hey, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to talk about some coaching legends that either retired or left jobs where they have been institutions. We're talking football as it relates to baseball. You are listening to the Book of Joe podcast.
0: There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables... Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notify, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
7: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource, and paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Today
8: more than ever, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical bill expert, finding savings can seem impossible. And who has the time? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and reviews your medical claims as they come in from your healthcare providers. Then HealthLock's technology flags and alerts you to any errors like overbilling, Wrong codes and frauds to help you and your family save. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from selected past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save more than $130 million. Saving on medical bills starts with knowing where to look. And HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com.
4: Joe, I'm sure you, you noticed um, all the changes. I mean, starting with Nick Saban retires at Alabama, 72 years old. Bill Belichick out with the New England Patriots, 71 years old. And he's already in the course of interviewing with other teams. Uh, and Pete Carroll, the age of 72, leaving the Seattle Seahawks, the all-time winning coach for the Seattle Seahawks. And I'm not sure he left on his completely on his own volition. It doesn't sound like he did. Um, you know, these things happen. We had Dusty Baker retire after last year. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts, Joe? I mean, these guys are a little bit older than you, but uh, you followed their careers. I mean, all of them re- remained relatable into their seventies. I don't think that's the reason why they're not coaching anymore. The game passed them by. No, of course not. Uh, Your thoughts when you saw some of these legends leave coaching positions in football.
1: I was just curious to like, if there was any really specific reason, either from them or from the people that were letting them go. Um, And again, when you talk about Pete in Seattle, it just appeared to be, um, there was a little bit of a disconnect with what was going on above him and down to his office, and that was relatable regarding what's happening in baseball a bit. I think Nick Saban also related something to the effect that I think he just didn't like the uh, the way college football, the direction it was headed in, how that was trending. I don't know specifically what he meant by that. Uh, Belichick, I just think there was a, a, an eventuality that uh, it probably better for him and the Patriots. I mean, there's nothing more he could have accomplished there in, um, in new England with what he had done there. So I, I think it's, again, it's, it's very similar to what happens in our sport. I think I kind of was, again, relatable for me, uh, regarding, uh, what I had done and how long I had done it. And then all of a sudden, um, you have to kind of relinquish, uh, power for a lack of better word. Um, uh, I know that was something I think I read with, um, with Pete, but I also know that Saban running a, a college team, he is everything. He is the CEO, he's the president, he's the dean, he's everything there. So it's it's hard to imagine um, him having that kind of a complaint, but I think a professional coach that's being let go uh, might be running into that because I think the trend, the idea that um, it's almost like everybody believes almost anybody can do it. I think they devalue the interaction with human beings, how this coach relates to the players specifically and then even right down to his experience level, what he brings to the table based on the years of having done this and all the different situations he's been in. I don't think that's um, really considered valuable anymore. I think the fact that the game's become so mathematical, again, it's, I, I think there's a lot of folks that think almost anybody can do it. I think it's kind of devolving to that point. So yeah, I've been watching it. I've been listening. I mean, I still want to read more. I want to hear more If you once the real reasons are put out there. and You're talking about guys like Sirianni now that is on a hot seat. This guy just won a Super Bowl, as an example, the guy with the Chargers, who was just let go after apparently a really uh, outstanding start. And now you're, all of a sudden I'm reading things about lack of experience. So uh, it's all over the map, man. It's all over the map. Um, it's uh, it's curious to watch. It's infiltrating all of sports. I think it's in, in, infiltrating all of industry where whoever in Charge really wants more power and control, And thus, if they if the person that they've hired to be running their business or whatever doesn't um, succumb to that and permit that, then all of a sudden I got to get somebody in there that's more malleable. And I think overall, that's what I'm seeing.
4: You're right, Joe. And uh, you're right to point out that this is not unique to baseball or even sports, as you mentioned, even in industry where people will come in from the let's call it the outside and gain power. and decision-making properties over people who are already in the system. And that was Pete Carroll's beef. I'm going to read you his explanation um, about why he's no longer the coach of the Seahawks because they told him they needed to make adjustments. So he said, what is the essence of the adjustments that are necessary? That's where maybe we don't see eye to eye on because I see it one way and I think I've got a way to fix it, and I'm not going to kind of halfway fix it. I'm trying to fix it so it's perfect. It's got real precise and specific thoughts, and they may not see it that way. They might, may not agree with it. They may not see that that's the right answer or that's not the right answer that makes them feel good. The difficult part is, if you guys can know, it's really hard because they're not football people. They're not coaches. And so to get to the real details of it is really difficult for other people. And there you go, Joe. That's the fundamental disconnect that we're seeing across sports. The people in power and the people who grew up in the game and are the coaches, instructors, whatever you want to call them, managers, right. are looking at it two different ways. But only one side is where the power lies, at least the final decision.
1: Right. I mean, it really discounts all the years that everybody has been doing what they've been doing. Um, and it really its um, kind of insulting, actually. When people think that almost anybody can do this, um, and again, when they uh, plop somebody into the managerial seat, somebody that's never managed on any level whatsoever and believe they should be successful based on, I don't know, personality, uh, trade, equality, ability to communicate a little bit, that really uh, it minimizes, and it's kind of insulting, like I said, to all the years that you've done something to get to achieve which, to get to that point. Uh, coming up as a young coach manager man there was some steps you had to get through and you had to you had to do it for a while you had to be successful for a while successful not in a sense in the minor leagues with the one loss record but successful in the sense that uh, you were very good at communicating organizational philosophy that you your players got better during the course of a season that your communication skills were on target uh, that you' were adaptable and and also that you have you were creative in your own right all these things have to be nurtured over a period of time. But to think that, you know, for me and I, I've, I have thought about this a little bit lately, the fact that when I look back at the work, uh, I've had a lot of stuff written down from the early 1980s to present. And I see a lot of consistency with what I wrote in the 1980s to what I still believe in today that really had worked and it was culminated in 2016. But um, it's, it's amazing that that stuff doesn't really matter anymore. And the fact that you think that uh, just based on, I don't know, reading a leadership book or uh, you just the fact that you have a lot of money based on another industry that you're going to walk in and be successful doing this, it's really – really—it's—it's it's, that's disconcerting and, and it's um, – that it is a cause for concern. But again, it's not just in our game. It's in every game. It's in every business. And um, with that, we've – again, experience really is not that important to – groups anymore. Wisdom is not necessarily that important anymore. It's just the idea that you, whoever's in charge, people report to them. You pretty much have to concede, acquiesce, and add creativity and the ability to think on your own is not really encouraged. It's really not. Uh, last one, I had a big dinner last night with a bunch of old rays here. Jim Hickey was there, Dwayne Stats, Tom Foley was sitting across from me. Uh, we're, having, we're having such really uh, a wonderful time, but the fact that this kind of um, uh, this method, this, this style, it's not it's not being recruited anymore. It's not desired anymore. The, this experienced uh, person is not necessary. And my, my overarching point is that who's teaching the game to the minor leaguers? And I'm talking about the minor league coaches who's passing the game along. Nobody's even thinking about that. Nobody's talking about that. And I think that is a real big mistake. Um, the game is uh, you know, had kind of a little bit of a renaissance last year based on a couple of rules changes, but it's not because the game was being taught any better uh, on a lower level. So if the game wants to sustain itself and really become this um, uh, a pleasing kind of a performance for the for the fan base to really get absorbed in again, we have to be aware of who's coaching the coaches in the minor league, who's passing the game along. That is such an important concept. And I don't think I've heard it discussed one time.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, we talked about it a little bit last week in terms of putting together a coaching staff and making sure you do have a blend. I do yes. think the game is coming back a little bit in that regard, Joe, it takes time. It's not going to be a, you know, a, a flip of a switch here. But when you look around, uh, you know, and you use this word all the time, a blend, right? And balance is probably the word you prefer over everything. That's the answer here because when you look at teams that are winning championships, it's the teams that do have that blend, that do have the human connection. Texas is the the premier example last year, and that you can pick just about any team. But the teams that are going heavy into so called new age and analytics and all that stuff is great. It's awesome. They're not winning championships. They're finding, you know, edges in terms of, you know, some things on the margins. I get that. That's great. You're always looking for that. But what wins championships? It's a team. It's the connection. Um, And I think that's true in every sport. So, you know, listen. Hey, we started out, and this is our our football edition to the Book of Joe podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bring it back to the NFL playoffs this weekend coming up. The San Francisco 49ers will play their 38th home game in the postseason, that will break a tie with Pittsburgh as the most ever in the NFL in a postseason. 38 home playoff games. The record so far, the first 37 at home, 27-10. and I mean, you can't find those records at home in Major League Baseball. I'm sorry. So you go with the chalk. If you're a betting man last year in the postseason, you took the road team in baseball every single game, you would have made a lot of money. Do the exact opposite in the NFL.
1: Yeah, uh, Keysar Stadium. <laughs> Did it start there? Then got into Candlestick for a while, and now you're there in Santa Clara. Uh, they're they're just they're just really good. I don't even know to what extent being on the West Coast helps them. You know, if, a, if an East Coast team has to fly out there to their home field, um, the time zone. Listen, that's that's real. When you have to change time zones, that stuff is real. But also, they've had really good teams. Uh, I know Mr. DeBartolo. He lives down here in Tampa. We talk about it. I've been to some events with him. I met some of the iconic past 49er players. The point is, they got good players. With all these things, uh, all these, whether it's baseball or football, whatever, whether you're data-driven or not, it really comes down to having good players. And they've had good players. Um, I think that gets overlooked sometimes. Everything, Everybody's uh, worried about methods, in a sense, or um, whether, you know, data versus uh, – we talked about data versus the heartbeat. At the end of the day, man, it comes down to having good players. It's always about your acquisitional abilities. So teams with better players are going to win most of the time, and especially in football. And I do believe uh, if, you have, if you're have if you on a, a, like a West Coast and you have teams traveling out here to play you often, you're going to have an advantage. You're definitely going to have an advantage. And, again, that even speaks to travel. I've even talked to a couple of NFL coaches or – GMs, a wide, what about your travel out West? How do you do that? When do you go? What do, what, do, what do you think about that? And how does it relate to you winning or losing? So I think that might be um, embedded in there somehow. And that'd be hard to prove or understand. But I think of those things, and I, I really believe that they are very pertinent.
4: Yeah. And listen, we talked about the NFL too, with overall it's a 67% advantage to be at home. And then if you're the number one seed and number two seed, you're coming off the bye week, everybody rests up, which really means a lot in football. It can be disastrous in baseball as we've seen to be off for too long is a great thing in football. Um, So I think about the Belichick teams in New England taking nothing away from them, but they would waltz through their division, win the title, get buys through the first round, get home games in the playoffs all the time, and the weather would be cold and West Coast teams would come in, or like Miami going to Kansas City last week. I mean, they were not going to win that game. Come on. So all those things matter a lot in the NFL. And how about Patrick Mahomes, as great as he is, he's actually playing his first road playoff game this week going up to buffalo to take on josh allen at the bills isn't that amazing that pat mahomes has not played a road playoff game we're not counting neutral site super bowls it's amazing
1: yeah i didn't even realize I didn't, of course i didn't realize that that is interesting and that that is it's it's let's see how this this the this plays out now how they react to this um you know uh, buffalo has to be a home court advantage but so does kansas city have to be a home court advantage so let's see what it looks like on the road i'm two great quarterbacks. And that's another thing about the NFL. You can talk about coaches all you want. If you don't have a quarterback, you ain't winning. Bingo. There's, there's, there's no, there's no way getting around it. I mean, you know, basketball used to be, I used to think that you have to have a center in basketball, a legitimate DH in baseball. You had to have left-handed relievers that were uh, functional and good. And in the NFL, you had to have a quarterback, man. There was different things that you had to have in each sport to be successful. And, and really today, the one that still stands out more than anything is if you don't have a quarterback, brother, you're going home. That's so true. It's even true in college football. Football is tough to
4: watch if there's not good quarterback play. It's so It pivots so much on quarterbacks. And speaking of quarterbacks, uh, Brock Purdy, his dad, of course, uh, yeah. you, he played for you in the minor leagues. Uh-huh. He'll be at uh, at quarterback for the 49ers this Sunday. Great story. I don't know if you saw this. It was actually a, a social media post Brock, uh, I think it was late in the season, played his first game close to home, played the Arizona Cardinals. And um, right before the game, 45 minutes, the team's out there going through, walkthroughs, stretching, whatever. Uh, he sees his family down there. Uh, and they're all it's all a bunch wearing their 49ers gear. So he comes over and he poses for a picture, puts on this great, huge smile. And they, it's a beautiful picture. And as soon as the shutter snaps – he goes back in the game mode, and you just the change in his face from huge smile to game face was just you got to see it if you see it on social media. It was a great little video of Brock Purdy uh, and of course he goes out there they win the game 45 to 29 he's as good as ever. Um, he had a great quote he said, "For me, you have to be in the mindset of being sharp every play and knowing what you're doing So in that moment, yes, I was sort of back in the football mode of. I've got to go be a surgeon <laughs> I love the way he put that picture with family. Now it's time to go be a surgeon.
1: Um, well, maybe that's why he is as good as he is. Um, the, you know, that horrible injury he had at the end of last season. Um, I watch, you know, every time I watch the kid play, oh my God. I mean, it's like, uh, first of all, how did he last that long into a draft? I mean, how did everybody miss that badly? It happens occasionally, but my God. Well, again, you could talk about Tom Brady.
4: I guess because he didn't have a good combine. Oh. You know, his measurements and going out
1: there and running around in spandex wasn't good enough. <laughs> well, that that is, again, that's that would be something more driven by data as opposed to human eyeballs. Uh, but, yeah, the kid, he's, he's got ice water. He makes great decisions. He appears to be very calm. Uh, I love it. I The fact that... Uh, him and his dad are friend of Book of Joe now. Uh, I think it's great. I do watch with more intensity. And, and of course, I'm rooting for him all the time. So, bully for him and bully for the Purdy family. I mean, he was
4: he did nothing but win in college. Played a lot in college. Had a lot of reps. Did nothing but win. Um, give me uh, your baseball equivalent of Brock Purdy. I'm thinking maybe James Shields. Um, as somebody that you just trust. That maybe when the stat cast numbers come in, they're not blown away by – you know, spin rates and, and vertical breaks. But as a manager, you say, I want this guy, with the ball in his hands.
1: Kyle Hendricks, you know, I mean, James was like that. Kyle was like that. Um, these guys were just so darn steady. And, you know, back in the time day, I, um, Chuck Finley was kind of like that too. I mean, uh, these are like kind of big names, but not uh, over the top big names, but yeah, I, I, Kyle Hendricks, I would be watching the, the gun. Right. And, Here comes the first pitch, 86. (laughs) Now, where does 86 play on a major league ball ball, ball field? And then there's certain days I saw 84, and I get a little concerned. But by here's the second or third inning, if I saw 86, 87, I knew he was going to have a good day because of the movement on his pitches and his ability to locate and just the fact that he was so darn smart. So uh, Kyle is kind of like the Brock Purdy of MLB. I love the comparison. This has been fun. Mm -hmm.
4: Football in January. Yeah, Yeah, I'm only a month away from spring training, but uh, it's been fun talking with former Lafayette Leopards quarterback, Joe Madden. That being said, Joe, (laughs) I I probably surprised you with the topic today. So you always have something
1: pertinent to take us out on.
4: Let's see if you can come through today.
1: Well, you're talking about all the coaches, right? And um, that have been let go. And in general terms, I just was with my boys last night. Uh, formerly with the Rays, all the, the coaches and, and staff members. Um, yeah, we just, brother, you cannot laugh any harder than we laughed last night. We're disturbing the entire restaurant. Oh my God, <laughs> I laugh. But it was about leadership. And so I did. I went with leadership today. Um, and then it just, it's just a fascinating topic for me because to me, leadership used to be so easily defined and you know what you were talking about. But now I don't even know uh, what's desired anymore when it comes to leadership or even the fact that people. Uh, think it matters anymore. Consider it. Um, I don't know. So, I, I, I'm, I'm, so I, I wanted to focus on that. So this came from, of all people, John Quincy Adams. If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more and become more, you are a leader. There's nothing in there about controlling anybody. It's about the inspiration, uh, causing somebody to dream more, but to get your imagination in gear here uh, learn more. just, you know, nobody has to tell you to figure things out or, or what to study next. You have your own personal desire to learn more. And then just, just in general becoming more. I mean, that's, that's pretty much sums up, uh, how I was back in the eighties, uh, moving on up to get to the point where I did eventually I had those, my coaches, my mentors were that they're inspirational. Gene mock, um, you know, dream more, uh, you know, Larry Himes, uh, learn more Bob clear and Marcel Latchman do more work ethic my god there was so many guys with great work ethic and become more I wanted to become a major league manager so uh, that kind of nailed it on the head for me so I don't know as we move this thing forward leadership who these new managers or coaches are going to be and trying to find out you know what uh, caused different groups to want to hire different people and why um, I'm just curious I mean I so aware of, of the leadership component of all this. And I don't want to say what it's devolved the because there's some great leaders out there, no question. But uh, last point, with all of this, you talk about we're talking about data and we're talking about analytics, whatever, versus coaches. But there's so much redundancy in this analytical world. I don't understand why that's not uh, located or talked about either. When you hire these big baseball operations people with so many analysts, why? I mean, aren't they stepping on each other's toes? Wouldn't I rather have a A real human that has done things before, a really good coach that can relate to people one-on-one, sit down with them, bad day, talk to them, uh, point different things out to them. Because this other stuff is very uh, non-emotional. It it lacks any of that. It's a number, right? And it's a picture, it's a video, whatever. But a human-relating experience to another human, to me, is still the most valuable thing to do. So I'm just curious about... Leadership and what we perceive to be a good leader these days, and what are you looking for as you're turning your whatever you're doing over to someone else? What are you looking for in that person, and are you there to empower them or to control them?
4: I think it's interesting that you went back a couple of hundred years to get J.Q. Adams to kind of define (laughs) J.Q. J.Q.A. and and you know what? That's those are truisms when they hold true for hundreds of years. And I think he's on right. was on to something there, Joe, because we hear a lot about the phrase that players like to play for this coach or he likes to play for this manager. Sure. What does that mean? To me, that means it's almost like with your parents, you don't want to let them down, mm-hmm. right? There, there's something there that drives you where you don't want to personally let someone down. Um, and so for JQ to nail it to me, it's uh, <laughs> almost an equivalent of leadership equals
1: inspiration, the ability to inspire—that's leadership. I, I agree, man, and that's that's my best guys. We talk about in the Book of Job. Coach Bob Root, uh, my Lafayette backfield coach, my quarterback coach, probably inspirationally one of the best I've ever had, uh, and, and it was all about the fact that uh, we would talk about things. Uh, it was never a yelling situation. It was never calling me names. Whatever it was just about and what just happened. How can we make this better? Or and the, and the the ultimate was when I did something. And I would go back to the sideline, and he would say, "I was thinking the exact same thing." And I would, "Oh my God, Coach! Who was thinking the exact same thing." Wow, that validation was the best.
4: Uh, we'll end it right there, this football edition. And just remember, Joe, take the home teams this weekend.
1: I got it. I'm going to go out there today. Make my put my bets down somewhere. There's got to be a bookie here in Tampa somewhere. <laughs>
4: The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.
2: You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new?